You're listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. I'm Dee Clark, and this is Cortez Currents, which you can also access in text form at cortezcurrents.ca. On the 21st of January, 2022, a notice appeared in Cortez Tideline from Mosaic, a forest management corporation which handles logistics for Timber West and Island Timberlands. The gist of it was captured in one sentence. As we have now been able to spend some time becoming familiar with our private managed forest lands on Cortez Island, we would like to share details of our draft three-year plan with those interested from communities on Cortez Island. Mosaic was careful to include the important word private in their announcement, a reminder that some 9% of Cortez forest land is still owned by private timber companies, not crown land, and that since 2003 at least, privately managed forest lands are a different kettle of fish. Most coastal residents are aware, on some level, that vast tracts of BC are privately owned by timber companies, whereas other large tracts of land are crown land, where logging takes place under license. Few, however, are aware of how that situation and the inconsistent policies and rules governing those two different land types came about. Back in 1871, BC joined the Canadian Confederation. At the time, rail was the dominant mode of land transport and essential to the prosperity of the resource extraction zone which comprised the entire coastal region. Mining and forestry in particular relied on rail transport to get goods to market. Clause 2 of the Terms of Union gave the federal government a huge swath of provincial land along proposed BC rail lines. Locally, it was about 20% of Vancouver Island. A goodly chunk of these acres shortly afterwards became the infamous Esquimalt and Nanaimo Land Grant, known to many as the Great Land Grab. This history should not be forgotten. It underlies today's conflicts over land rights as well as forestry impacts and practice. Coincidentally or not, the land grant region coincides with the best Douglas fir habitat on the island. So how did a railway company get a hold of such an enormous land base full of the most valuable timber? In order to, quote, connect the seaboard of BC with the railway system of Canada, the federal government agreed in the 1870s to contribute $100,000 annually towards the construction of a railway. BC then agreed to grant about 800,000 acres of land plus $750,000 in cash to any company that would construct a railroad on Vancouver Island. Needless to say, this enormous carrot mostly benefited the wealthiest in the land. The man who scooped up the extraordinary sweetheart deal was none other than Robert Dunsmuir, the coal baron. Dunsmuir wasn't really interested in railroads, but he could see the value of this vast acreage of land. Ownership implied not only timber, but control of coal and other mining rights within 20 miles each side of the line, according to some sources. Like all barons of industry in his day, Dunsmuir was well-connected politically. He managed to secure the contract. Immediately, his newly founded Esquimalt and Nanaimo Railway Company, the E&N, started subdividing the huge land grant into parcels and selling it off, vastly increasing his wealth. 
This one agreement effectively privatized a third of the traditional territory of the whole Quiminum, who today continue to contest the legality of land sales within the grant area. Work on the railway also proceeded. Wikipedia notes, based on an average value of $10 per acre for the land ENN received, it cost the government $626,660 per mile to build the railway, which, when complete, was in private hands. The railway was given a massive amount of old-growth forests. Proceeds from the land grants helped to build Dunsmuir's Craig Darroch Castle. The initial grant amounted to almost 10% of Vancouver Island and included the mineral rights and all known coal deposits. Unquote. Subsequent land grants to the ENN Railway Company ended up by 1925 encompassing the entire 2 million acres or 20% of Vancouver Island. The grants were written to protect the surface rights of Anglo settlers and squatters, but not, of course, those of First Nations. Dunsmuir never made good on the original agreement. The tracks his company built stopped at Courtney and never reached the promised terminus in Campbell River. Dunsmuir and his company were also required by the terms of the agreement to run a passenger train every day in both directions, seven days a week, in perpetuity. Needless to say, he and his investors also reneged on that part of the contract. Dunsmuir sold the railway to CPR in 1905. After a brief period of build-up and extension, the line started to decline. By the 70s, competition from highways was cutting into freight traffic. In 1999, the line was sold to an American company, Rail America. Passenger service had dwindled, and freight traffic was also much reduced. The privately owned line did not enjoy the subsidies accorded to highways. As the mills closed, and this was one of the consequences of a change in forestry policy, which we'll get to again later, as the mills closed, the amount of freight diminished even further. Passenger service withered away to an intermittent seasonal tourist train. Perpetuity did not last very long. By 2011, all passenger service was suspended due to the deterioration of the inadequately maintained tracks. The ENN, while not markedly successful in delivering reliable rail service for very long, was not slow to sell large chunks of the land grant to forestry companies. Many parcels have changed hands several times over the decades. Some have been logged and flogged, clear-cut for timber, then flipped to developers on the outskirts of growing communities. Some have been replanted and turned into tree farms, but all of them were privatized on the basis of a shady deal and a broken contract over a century ago. Today, Island Timberlands and Timber West hold more than a half million hectares of forest land on Vancouver Island thanks to that shady, long-ago deal. But that isn't the end of the sad story. A quote from a paper by Parfit, Akers, and Van Wagner from PolicyNote.ca. The logging these companies are engaged in is not what the architects of provincial forest policy had in mind three-quarters of a century ago when a royal commission created a new forest tenure known as forest management licenses, later known as tree farm licenses. The new licenses allowed companies to apply for rights to log publicly owned or crown forest in exchange for bundling their private lands with public lands and managing the two as one. 
Companies then agreed to limits on logging, known as allowable annual cuts. They also agreed not to convert the forest land to any other use. End quote. And that was how things stood until 2003, when the provincial government rewrote the rules with the Private Managed Forest Lands Act, or PMFLA. Older listeners may recall that in 2001, Gordon Campbell's Liberal Party had won a resounding victory over the scandal-plagued NDP, and they began pushing B.C. public policy rightward with a pro-business, pro-extraction strategy. The PMFLA was one part of that push. Parfit et al. sum it up, quote, The new act drastically reduced government oversight by removing limits on the number of trees that could be logged on private lands. It also lifted restrictions on where companies were required to process timber. To no one's surprise, companies responded by yanking their private lands out of the tree farm licenses, accelerating their logging, and disenfranchising communities, especially indigenous groups, along the way. End quote. We should also note that those companies swiftly responded to this deregulation by switching to raw log export and suspending their milling activities in Canada. And here's some more from Parfit and Company. In the most recent 10 years, Island Timberlands has been the most aggressive of the big three logging companies, cutting 1.9 million cubic meters of trees every year. Timber West is close behind, falling just shy of 1.8 million cubic meters annually, and Western Forest Products has harvested nearly 290,000 cubic meters of timber per year over the same 10-year period. End quote. Island Timberlands is the company that now owns 9% of Cortez Forest Land and is represented by Mosaic, their logistics and public relations agent. For a longer version of this story, including endnotes, many links to further reading, and several maps, visit the text version at cortezcurrents.ca. Just a reminder, the views and opinions heard on this program are not endorsed by Cortez Community Radio, its board, its staff, its membership, or any granting agency, but are those of the writer, producer, and guests. And, as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>